You're listening to a sermon by Hope Bible Church Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at hopeniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Let me just add to that to uh, what Pastor Tim said. It's a happy Mother's Day to the mothers in the room. We're grateful for you. We are especially, though, also grateful for all the women in our church who love the Lord's people, who are serving, who are ministering to others. We talk about being spiritual moms, and that's what we mean. We're talking about women who are a blessing, who are used of God to minister to others in our church family, and there are many, many of you here, and so we want to honor you. We're grateful. For, actually, we're not grateful enough. We're not grateful enough for the women that God has placed here in our midst, in our church family. So, uh, Lord, bless you and make you a blessing on, uh, uh, on this day and in whatever days he gives us to come. Well, they say that there's nothing certain in this world except for death and taxes. Have you heard that? And I agree that there is some truth in that saying. It's, it's true that we live in a world that's full of uncertainty. And despite our best laid plans, there's many things that, that we think will happen that don't, and things that, that we we're sure would not happen that do happen. We're, we're told to expect the unexpected, and don't count your chickens before they hatch. Or, in the words of Forrest Gump, life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. There's worldly wisdom in these words that's based on true observations that we just often don't know what the future holds. I mean, we don't know what this afternoon will bring. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. We don't even know if we'll have tomorrow while we're at it. The reality is that there are many things about the future that we're just not sure about. But the reality is, though, too, is that there are many things about the future that we can be sure about. You see, the Word of God tells us many things that are guaranteed to happen that are still to come, things that we will personally experience, that we'll personally encounter. And it speaks of these things with unflinching seriousness, the reality of things that are to come. And one of those future events that the Bible guarantees us will come, that every human being will be part of, including you, including me, no matter who you are or where you've come from, or what you're doing, every human being will one day stand before the Lord who will be our judge. The Bible tells us that that is something that's coming. It's guaranteed. It's, a, it's an appointment that you won't avoid. It's a meeting that you won't miss. The Bible tells us that judgment day is coming. And the sobering reality we are struck with this morning is that today we are one day closer to it. The Bible says this, get a little of this verse in Hebrews 9 and 27. It is destined for people to die once, and after this comes judgment. Now, there's a lot that we could say about the timing of these things and when, when that will happen. What's the interval between dying 
and judgment. There's lots of things we could say. There's, there's of course, too, there's, there's many careful Bible students that would differ in their understanding of Scripture in terms of order of things. And, uh, in fact, there's, there's some that would argue there's just, there's just one, one uh, judgment day. There's some that argue there's more than one judgment day. I'm not going to get into that, not because I'm afraid of it, but because it's secondary to the point that I want to make to you today. The main point I want to make to you today is what this verse tells us, that judgment is coming. It is destined for people to die once, and after this comes judgment. That's a serious, sobering message, and that is the subject of my sermon today. It's on judgment day, or as I'm going to refer to it going forward here, final judgment. What is it? What's involved? Who's the judge? How will it go for me? These are things I'm concerned with today that I want to share with you from the Word of God. And, and to study this, I'd like us to go to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 17, and our focus will be verses 22 to 34. Acts 17, verses 22 to 34. And if you are going to use a pew Bible, there, are, there should be, just look under the, the back of the chair in front of you, you should see uh, within arm's length a Bible. If you don't have your own copy, I'd love for you to use, go ahead and use that. I'm, uh, I'm all in favor of the Bible app, so power those up. I just, whatever it is, I want you to see this for yourself. It's such a serious subject. And it's so important that you see for yourself what the Word of God says. Now, we're in a series right now on the afterlife. And we're, we're looking at what does the Bible tell us about what will happen when we die? And we've covered a lot of ground already. We, uh, we began our first sermon. We were looking at what happens to a believer, somebody who loves and follows Jesus. When, when they die, what, what happens to them? And we learned in Scripture that the moment a believer dies, the moment somebody who loves and follows Jesus, the moment they die, they immediately go to be with the Lord. Absent from the body, Paul teaches. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. And then, of course, the, the second week, we looked at the subject of resurrection. And the Bible tells us that in a coming day, God is going to raise us from the dead. This body, this 1.0 version of this body that's going to let me down, is going to be raised and transformed into a 2.0 version, and there'll be no upgrades needed after that. It's going to be quite the body. It's going to be fit for eternity. Imagine how we'll look then. It would be really, really something hard to imagine in some ways, isn't it? But the Bible says that's coming. So we go to be with the Lord for a believer. The moment we die, we go to be with the Lord. In a coming day, we'll be raised and given new bodies fit for eternity. We also studied this, we studied for one message, the subject of heaven. And I want to, my plan is at the end of the series, you're going to come back and say more about heaven at the end. But today we're talking about a difficult subject. In fact, today and next week, it's kind of, it's very difficult, very difficult terrain. But if we're really going to answer the question about what does the Bible teach us about the afterlife, we've got to go through it. And one such reality the Bible tells us about is that judgment is coming. In the end, when Jesus returns, he will judge. Now in our text here, Paul is in Athens, Greece, this great ancient city. It was the philosophical and intellectual center of the ancient world. It was a hub for literature, for education, religion, had breathtaking architecture, and it was really it was a place that was, was home to some of the greatest philosophical minds in history. Names like Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Epicurus, names such as these called Athens home. 
But for all of its intellectual prowess, Paul, when he showed up in Athens, was greatly bothered, provoked, the Bible says, deeply disturbed about what he saw there. Have you been provoked this week? Deeply disturbed by something you've heard or seen? You know that feeling where you're just agitated? You're like, this, this isn't right. This, something's something's got to be done here. Something's got to be said. That's how Paul felt when he showed up at Athens. This great center of intellect and philosophy and thinking and writing. And he showed up there and he was provoked. He was bothered by what he saw. Because what he saw was that the city was full of idols. And so what he did is he reasoned with anyone and everyone he could, declaring to them the truth that he knew that they needed to know about God, about the one true God. And among those people that Paul interacted with was an influential group, a powerful and influential group who invited him to come and to share his ideas. The group was known as the Areopagus, this, is the, this was the, the ruling council in Athens. They had authority over civic and religious affairs in the city. Powerful, influential people. And in our text, what's happening is that Paul has been invited to present his message to them. They want to hear him out. And so Paul shows up there in front of this austere group, and you can imagine they, everyone takes their seats, and there's a hush over the room, and Paul steps up to the lectern and says these words. Verse 22 of Acts 17. It says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown... This I proclaim to you. Now, just to pause here for a moment, I want you to notice Paul's tact, the way that he goes about addressing these folks. He's very, he's very gracious, very gentle. He has seen, he's, he's seen idols, and he doesn't stand up in their midst and say, I've seen all these idols that you've got. No, he says, you're objects of worship. Of course, they were idols, but he's, he's got an audience here. He's trying to present the gospel. He doesn't want a stumbling block in the way, and so he speaks in a way that's winsome, very truthful but also very tactful. Now he says, you know, you get this, I've seen you've got this altar with an inscription on it to the unknown God. Well, let me tell you about that unknown God. You see, he sees an opportunity, a way in to share the gospel, and he takes advantage of that. Verse 24, he says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Love this, love this. See what he's doing? Implicitly, he's contrasting their pagan idols with the one true God. So there's a way you could say, if you're reading between the lines, he's saying your idols are worthless. You know that, right? Like they're just, they're worthless idols that have got to be housed in temples. Well, the real God doesn't need a temple. He made everything, but you see how tactful he is. And uh, he's, he's not, not, letting, not letting his tact get in the way of sharing the gospel. I just find it so instructive for us as believers. Notice he says in verse 26, and he, talking about God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him 
and find them. I can just imagine Paul just praying silently as he's speaking. Lord, give them ears to hear. Give them open eyes to see. Yes, he says in verse 27, yes, he is actually not far from each one of us. Isn't that a good word? For in him we live and move and have our being. Now, he's not quoting scripture here. He's quoting, he's quoting ancient literature that the people would have been familiar with. He's quoting the ancient artists. It's like, it's like quoting Shakespeare or Katy Perry, if those two go together. I don't know. But you, they, they would recognize, they would know, they would, they would recognize a lyric. Even as some of our poets have said, for indeed we, for we are indeed his offspring. See, he's making that connection. Familiar ideas and now connecting them to the, the, the message of truth that he's trying to bring. Verse 29, being then God's offspring... We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because, and here's our theme for the day, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Who's the man that God has appointed to be the judge? It's Jesus. By a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So as sure as Christ has risen from the dead, so also it is equally assured that judgment is coming. Verse 32, see their response, how they respond to this. Now, when they heard of resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again on this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. What's interesting here in this text is that Paul is addressing people, and his on-ramp for his address is their own admission of not knowing something. They have this altar to an unknown God. And so Paul says, my message to you today is to take you from being unknowing to knowing. My ministry today is to speak to you the truth. There are some truths that you need to know. In fact, that's something I want you to see here right up front. There are some truths that you, that we, you and I, that we need to know. Paul says, you worship, verse 23, you worship uh, what is unknown, but he says, I want to declare to you what you can know, what you should know. This I proclaim to you. What does he proclaim? He proclaims the truth about God. The message, and the message of the gospel and this call to turn to the true and living God. He says, verse 23, what therefore you worship is no, unknown, this I proclaim to you. Here is a people in Athens who are quite spiritual, who are, uh, who are very in touch with the fact that there is more to this world than just what meets the eye. The problem is that they don't know the truth. The problem is they're groping along and feeling for things that they intuitively sense in their heart, but they don't see the reality of the living God. And so Paul comes in and he says, that's, that's my role here. I want to tell you about the true and living God. I would suggest to you that the Athenians are like a lot of Canadians. We live in a culture, in a country, where many people consider themselves quite spiritual. And they mean that sincerely. 
We live in a land where there are a variety of spiritual beliefs. People see themselves as mindful people. The fact is that in our culture, there are a lot of people, a lot of people you live next to, a lot of people you work with, who you study with, who you play with, people in your family who they, they don't know Jesus, but they consider themselves very spiritual and believe that there is some kind of higher power or at least a spiritual realm. They believe there's more to life than just what meets the eye. That was the Athenians. That's present-day Canada. There's many people that have a sense of these things. Now, what Paul does here is he shows us that as admirable as it may be to have sincere beliefs about things, there are truths that we've got to know because we can be sincere, but sincerely wrong. And so Paul comes in here with the, with the truth. And while the Athenians, they worship these many pagan gods, what Paul observes is they've got a fear that they might be missing something. And so our best sense of it is it seems in all this pantheon of, of, of pagan worship, they had a sense that there may be a God that we don't know about and we don't want to offend him. So what we've got here, this altar of the unknown God, they're, they're hedging their bets is what they're doing, just in case. It sort of reminds me of my wife and I have spent some time in, in Haiti and we love the Haitian people and it's so heartbreaking what they're dealing with right now with the gang violence and the poverty and the hunger. It's just, it's so heartbreaking. But just a precious people who are incredibly poor. In Haiti, the spiritual makeup, it was described to me this way by a man who's led us there a few times. He, he describes it this way. In Haiti, it's a very spiritual place. It's 50% Catholic, 50% Protestant, and 100% voodoo. You understand? So show up at the Catholic church, show up at my Protestant church, do that thing. But there is a fear of the devil and... And there are people, and people are enslaved to voodoo. And in case they're just like, just in case, well, we'll go, we'll show up at the church, we'll do the Christian thing, but we gotta hedge our bets, we gotta cover our bases, and so they'll do their their voodoo rituals and go to the witch doctor, and that's really it's, it's heartbreaking. But loved ones, that's the reality that a lot of people live in. You don't have to be into voodoo to live that way. Lots of people are hedging their bets. There's lots of people that show up at church, and I'm glad that you show up at church anytime, but lots of people that kind of show up at Christmas and Easter kind of hedging their bets, like, ah, there's, there may indeed be something to that. And gotta, there's some things I feel I gotta check off in my life. And th that's where a lot of people are at. That's where the Athenians were at. And Paul, this is what Paul was so stirred up by, that these are people, they, they are so sincere about the reality of spiritual things, but so blind. And this place is filled with idols, and, and these people are worshiping these idols when there's this true and living God who's awesome and wonderful. And Paul, with that great holy indignation, shows up in front of this austere crowd and says, there's some truths you've got to know. And there's some truths that you've got to know too. What are those truths? Well, I get them from Paul's address here. There's three categories I want to give you. There's, first of all, there's three truths about God. And then there's two truths about people. And then one truth about the future. Okay, that's, that's my message to you today, okay? So we're going to start with three truths about God, two truths about people, and then one truth about the future. So we'll start with three truths about God. First thing, God is great. God is great. That's my summary of what Paul says in verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, 
does not live in temples made by man. The world and all that is in it, this universe and all that contains, Paul reminds us that it has a maker, one maker, and that's our God. He made everything that there is. Everything that is not God, God made. He created everything. He, he created and, and spoke into being the, the stars, the constellations in the sky, all the, the planets, and, and, and all the, we don't even know the extent of the universe. All the galaxies and all the planets and all the stars. When you look up there in that, that breathtaking night sky this summer, you, your, your God put that all into being, spoke it into existence. The sun that you will feel today, the, the moon that we will see at night, he made it all. The Grand Canyon. Some of you have been to the Grand Canyon. I'll try not to hate you. It's on my little bucket list. I'd love to go there. Because it's huge and breathtaking. I've seen the pictures, and I, I'm sure the pictures don't do it justice. But there's a God who created this world in all of its vast splendor, from the mountain ranges to the valleys. He made all that there is. He made all the big things, but he also made the small things. The fur that's on that little insect God designed it that way. The, the, the smallest atom. Even think about the skin that you're sitting in today. Have you ever considered your skin? It's a remarkable thing. That this, how does how it I mean? It's, it, it will, it's got pores that lets out the sweat, and yet it's waterproof. It, it's amazing to me. And, and or how, about, how about the blood vessels that are woven through your body? Did you know that in your body there are approximately, if you took all the blood vessels in your body and laid them end to end, the distance would be about 100,000 kilometers. Yes, you heard me right. 100,000 kilometers. If we laid your blood vessels end to end, there would be enough of them to go around the world twice. And it's all contained in you. you got a lot going on right now. This is God who created you, who made you that way. He is great. Paul says he's Lord of heaven and earth. Reminds us that he's transcendent over everything. He's not part of the creation, does some think. He is the creator. He's separate from the creation and rules over all things. He is, Paul says, he's great. You need to know that about God. He's not common. He's near, but he's not our pal. He's God. But you also need to know that even though God is great, the second thing you know, truth you know about God is that God is good. He's great and he's good. Verse 25, he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Think about that. What Paul is saying here is that whatever you've got, you've got it ultimately from God. Even, even that next breath a gift to you from God. You owe your existence to him. You are because he is. And he created you and spoke you into being. Earlier in Acts, Acts 14 verse 17 says this about God. He did good to people by giving you rains from heaven, fruitful seasons, satisfying your heart with food and gladness. He had a good family gathering in the last while or maybe just had a good meal enjoyed a good Subway sandwich with steak and cheese and barbecue sauce and mayonnaise, maybe some extra cheese, and just sat back and privately enjoyed that. 
or maybe it was a, a hamburger you enjoyed, or maybe some ice cream or something like that, or maybe you just walked through your garden and smelling all the smells there is the smell this time of year. Had any experiences like that? Uh, moments in your day, in your week, in your month where there was a, a, a sense of joy and gladness? All that came from God. He gives that to you. Your very breath, every joy, family, friends, the food in your fridge. You say, well, hang on a second. That food's in my fridge because I went and worked my tail off this week. And I got sores on my hands and aches in my back to prove it. Well, that, that's true. But where, from where did you get the ability to do all that work? I mean, from where did you get the strength to open your eyes in the morning, let alone get out of bed, let alone show up at the workplace and do what you got to do all week? Where'd you get the skill, the talent, the ability is that just you just digging down being you, or is it possible that maybe that came from someone else? Well, the Bible says you owe it all to the Lord. The fact that you got anything, the fact that you and I have anything, it's a reflection of his goodness. He's great, and he's good, but also he's holy. God is holy. Verse 24, God who made the world and everything in it. So he's separate from, he's distinct from, he is set apart. That's what holiness means. It's set apart, distinct, it's other than. And of course, particularly, the, the most common uh, meaning that we think of when we hear about God's holiness is his righteousness. That there is in him no sin whatsoever, no impurity he is pure. He is holy. He is the standard. When you talk about right versus wrong, our point of reference is him. And that's why verse 21, it's so sobering when it talks about judgment to come. It'll be based on God's holiness. Did you notice that? He has fixed a day, verse 31, on which he will judge the world in what? In righteousness. That's a reminder that God is holy. And this has significance for us when we think about judgment because we're talking about a God who is great. He's God. He's good. So that's good news. That's encouragement to us if we're, fear, if we're fearful. But he's holy as well. So all this comes together. This is significant. And Paul's presentation is like there's some things you need to know. You need to know some things about God. Three things. God has helped me out here. God is what? God is great. God is. And God is. Now, there's two things we need to know about people. First of all, Paul says, he gives us some really bad news in verse 29. Notice what he says there. Being then God's offspring, so we owe our existence to him, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, like all the idols he found around Athens. The times of ignorance God overlooked but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Two truths about people. Number one, we have not treated God like God. We have not treated this great, good, holy God the way we should have treated him. And if you're wondering about that, just think with me for a second about this. When you think about God's commandments, we often go to the, the Ten Commandments that we read in the Old Testament that God gave to Israel. And remember commandment number one. He told them, he said, I am the Lord your God. You will have no other gods before me. Now let me just be real with you here. We don't need the other nine. We've already blown it on number one. Like if we're trying to assess where we stand before a holy God, 
Just the first commandment. In fact, Jesus was asked, well, there's a lot of commands, Jesus, a lot of commandments from God. What's the most important? And Jesus said, well, it's this, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. You done that? He said, well, I love him perfectly, consistently. He's great. He's good. He's holy. He's God. One of the important messages of the Bible we need to understand is that we have not treated God like God. And my guess is, is that most of us, even if we hadn't been told that, we got a sense of it anyway. Is there any of us here who had not, even within the last 24 hours, haven't done something totally selfish or stupid? And maybe you're kicking yourself today. Well, it's just a reminder of the fact that we've not treated God like God. And like we sometimes say around here, if you're any, in any doubt, questioning at all whether you're righteous or not, just ask the people you live with. Just ask the people closest to you. And, and they will probably say something to you like, what do you mean by righteousness? Because <laughs> if you ask me if you're righteous, like, no, you're, you're not perfect. In fact, far from it. You may see yourself as a good person. And from my standard, your standard, you might just, we might just determine that you are. But before a great and good and holy God, the reality is we've not treated God like God. And that is a problem. That is a problem because we've been made to know him and to love him and to treat him, to walk in a relationship with him where we treat him indeed like God. Yes, under his greatness. Yes, experiencing his goodness, but remembering his holiness. And the reality is, is that we've fallen short. That's the first thing we need to know about people. Do you understand that? And do you agree with the Bible's assessment about you? As awkward or as uncomfortable as it may be, do you agree with God's assessment of you that you've not treated him like God? Well, that leads us to the second truth we need to know about people, and it's this. We're commanded to repent. See that in verse, verse uh, 30? Now he commands all people everywhere to repent. There's been times of ignorance that God's overlooked. God's been merciful. God is patient. But his call, his command on people now is to repent. He's, he's not dealt with us the way he could have. There's a sense in which we could say he's not dealt with us the way he should have. He's a holy God and we have not treated him as such. But in his mercy and in his kindness, he's been patient. He's given me life and breath. And, and here today, if you're hearing my voice this morning, whether you're here in this room or online watching or listening by podcast, he has given us life and breath such that we can hear the truth, the truth about him, the truth about ourselves, and the truth about what he's done for us to rescue us from our great problem. But you, gotta, you can't overlook this reality that he calls us to repent, that is to turn from the way that we're going to him. In fact, it's the first thing that Mark quotes Jesus as saying in his gospel. Jesus said, repent and believe the gospel. Jesus came into the world to rescue us from our sin, dying on the cross for our sin to save us. And the call, the scripture now is for you and I to repent, to turn away from our way to the Lord. Now, moms, you know what real repentance looks like, and you know what real repentance doesn't look like. And because you've, you've dealt with it, right? I mean, you know, you know the difference between when your kids are sorry and when they're sorry. You know what I mean? Like there's the sorry that you say to make this being in trouble thing go away. And then there's the sorry when it's a help, heartfelt sorrow that I've, I've really messed up. 
and I'm ready to change. Our moms are experts in this room at discerning the difference. Beloved ones, can you discern the difference in your own heart? Have you sort of been in a pattern where you encounter some guilt and she's like, okay, I gotta, I gotta find something to make this go away? Or are you in a place right now where you are repentant before the Lord? See, the reality is that we need to acknowledge the fact that we've sinned and look to Jesus as the Savior who can save us from our sin and trusting in him now go his way by his strength, treating him, treating God like we should. We're commanded to turn we're commanded to agree and believe, to agree with God and believe God. We're commanded to repent. We've not treated God like God, but we're commanded to turn. Those are two truths about people. Now, I said there is three truths about God. Remember, God is great. God is, God is. And two truths about people. Remember, what is it again? We've not treated God like We've, we're commanded to repent. There you go, you're with me. You guys are really impressive. One truth about the future, and here's where we're coming right down to it. Paul gets right at it in verse 31, doesn't he? He puts out that call to repent. I love this. this is, there's so many messages we could preach from this passage. So instructive for the followers of Jesus in sharing the gospel. He has a winsome, gentle approach, doesn't he? Doesn't, doesn't call all these idols, they're all worthless. Doesn't say that. Objects of worship. I can see these are very religious people. Building that bridge. But we can see here that Paul, he's not all fluff. Like he's not handing out cotton candy at the fair here, is he? Verse 30, he calls them to repent. You've got to respond. And then he tells them why. Verse 31, because, why, why do we got to repent? Well, because he, that is God, has fixed a day on which he will judge the world. So God's got a calendar, and he's got a date circled on his calendar. He doesn't show his calendar to others, but he got one, and he's got a date chosen. It's coming. We're one day closer, whenever it is. He's fixed a day on which he will judge the world. Judgment is coming. Final judgment is coming. That's the truth about the future. He is going to judge the world, and he'll do it by a man whom he has appointed. So one truth about the future Final judgment is coming. It's going to happen. God has fixed a day. He's determined it. It's going to happen. It's, it's crazy to me. Just think about this. Like, we are one day closer. We have one day less to be prepared for this. We have one day less of distance between me right now and that day when I'll stand before the Lord. He's saying he's fixed a day. It's not moving. Sometimes you book a trip to travel. It gives you flex dates. Are your dates flexible? It may be flexible for your vacation, but this date is fixed, and we get closer to it today. It's coming. And Jesus will be the judge, a man who's appointed. That's, that's Jesus. John chapter 5, Jesus says that the Father has given judgment to the Son. So when Jesus returns, he will be the judge, and he will judge in righteousness. You see that in, the, in verse 31? He will judge the world in righteousness. So significant we see that, because... It's not going to be like our present-day courtrooms. There's not going to be any tactics by crafty lawyers in, this, in God's courtroom. There's not going to be any plea bargains or side deals. There's not going to be shady witnesses called forth who may or may not have remembered correctly. And the judge, the judge will, just as Pastor Tim said, that reminded us this morning, the judge sees clearly. 
He's not, he's not limited by his, his limitations. He sees everything, sees right into my heart. You see, the judgment day to come will be totally fair. Total, the judge will judge totally without, totally without partiality. It'll be truth. It'll be real. It's coming. One truth about the future, final judgment is coming. Now understand this, that this judgment will be different for believers compared to unbelievers. Believers, because of Jesus, get this, you ready? Believers can actually look forward to judgment with anticipation. You're like, seriously? It doesn't sound like something to anticipate so far. Let me show you. Let me show you in the Bible. Don't take my word for it. Do not take my word for anything. Look at the Bible. See what it says. Look at what, Jesus, what John says in John 3 and 18. Whoever believes in him, in the context, him is Jesus. Whoever believes in him, notice, is not condemned. Do you see that? Not condemned. Condemned is disaster. Condemned is, on judgment day, I do not want that over my head. Whoever believes in Jesus, though, is not condemned. Like now, are you believing in Jesus? Do you love and follow Jesus? If you do, if you're believing in him, you're banking in him, you're trusting him that he did die, that he did rise, and so you're, you're putting the full weight of your confidence on him. Jesus is you or nothing. If that's you, then look it, look it. You're not condemned. It's like, like the verdict's already in. Not guilty, which is crazy because we know that we are. But you see, God is just. He's holy, remember? And part of his holiness is that he's just. And so God, there's no double jeopardy in God's courtroom. You know what I mean by that? Like double jeopardy is when you get tried and convicted for the same crime twice. That's not a thing in God's courtroom. Because, because God will not punish you for sins that Jesus has already been punished for. And when you trust in Jesus, all of your sins, past, present, and future, goes on him. So you're forgiven. You stand forgiven. And this is now you, not condemned. In fact, you can write that. You make yourself a name tag and stick that on you. Not condemned. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But, 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 whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You say, if I'm condemned already, how do I change that? Is there anything I can do? Yes. Believe on the Son of God. Turn to Jesus. Remember that word, repent. Turn to him. And you will go from being condemned to not condemned forever. But you see the difference? Let me show you a few more verses, because there's, there's tons. But let me show you a few more. How about John 5 and 24? This is Jesus speaking. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, has eternal life. So it's faith. It's not you fixing yourself. It's you trusting in Jesus. And he says, so whoever hears my word and believes him who sent, who sent me has eternal life. Notice he does not come into judgment, that is the judgment of being condemned, but has passed from death to life. So you're alive. You got life. I'll show you another verse here. Uh, oh, this is really good. The other ones are good too. This is really good. He will render to each one according to his works. As looking ahead to Judgment Day, Romans 2, 6 and 7, he will render to each one according to his works. So see, it's impartial. It's not, it's not balanced. There's no games going on here. It's just based on reality. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Now that sounds kind of funny, right? That almost at first blush, if you don't know the context, at first blush sounds like it's works. 
But don't misunderstand. It's not these works here. That isn't earnings to get you into heaven. No, no, rather, it's evidence in your life that you know Jesus. And God is the one who works this in our hearts, giving us the desires to do these things and the power to do these things, to live for him, to keep trusting in him, to seek for his glory and honor and to seek after this life he's given me, not striving to earn it, but living as one who has it. And judgment day for the believer is not a weighing of your works to see if you're fit for heaven. No, it's already decided. Jesus has paid the penalty for you. Rather, in God's courtroom for you, it will be evidence to the glory of Jesus of the fruit that he's produced in your life that will demonstrate that you really are his. So you can look forward with anticipation. Now, some of you are looking at me like, Ross, you're really, okay, I'm with you. I'll show you another verse. This, you'll love this verse. Okay, let's go to this one. Notice, in case you're confused, so what's the evidence in the courtroom? Well, it's my works, but it's not, should I let him into heaven or not? No, that's settled, for Jesus. that's settled by Jesus. It's the evidence of God's work in my life on Judgment Day for the believer that demonstrates that I knew Jesus. Notice this, though. There is therefore now no what? No, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So you see what Judgment Day is going to be? This is why I say you can anticipate it. Because Judgment Day for the believer is going to be a reviewing of the fruit of the Spirit of God's work in your life that will be to the praise and glory of King Jesus. And, you, and therefore, you can anticipate it. You're not going to be condemned. You're not condemned now if you're in Christ. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'll show you another one. I really love this one, right? Not that I haven't loved the other ones, but this is just so good. Paul says he had a lot of people criticizing him. And he's like, uh, yeah, you probably shouldn't judge me. I don't even judge myself. We should let the Lord be the decider of what I'm doing. He says, it is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time. When's the time? Well, before the Lord comes. What's going to happen when he comes? Well, judgment's going to come. And he will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his, what's this word here? commendation from God. Now, honestly, that's not the word I'm expecting to see there. Because I read this stuff about Jesus coming back and dis disclosing even the purposes of my heart, and I intuitively think, that can't be good. But then I read on, and I say, I expect that I will see, then you'll receive his condemnation from God. But that's not what it is. He's talking about the believers and the expectation that we can have about Judgment Day for the believer. It's not condemnation, but commendation from God. So we make it our aim to please the Lord, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10, because we'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And we want maximal, on that day, we want maximal joy in the Lord, looking forward to the day when we'll receive our commendation from him, rewards. So it's something you can anticipate, something you can live for, go full out like a sprinter to the finish line, looking forward to that day when you receive your commendation from God. Isn't that, wouldn't that be awesome? How, how great will it be to receive a commendation from God? Amazing. And it's all because of Jesus. So you see what I mean? It's different for a believer from an unbeliever. For believers, final judgment can be faced with anticipation. For the unbeliever, final judgment will bring devastation. I want to take you to one more passage of Scripture. If you turn your Bible to the end of the Bible, to Revelation chapter 20, right near the end. 
if you're using a pew Bible, just go to the very end and just back a page or two. You'll see it. Revelation chapter 20. And in this chapter, the apostle John, he was, he was given, God showed him things that are to come. And in this section, we're just going to read here for just a moment. He's describing what God showed him will happen on judgment day at final judgment regarding, well, everyone, but especially unbelievers. Revelation 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Who's seated on it? Who do you think? Who's the judge going to be? It's Jesus, right? From his presence, notice, notice how... In so much terrifying this is. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Do you see the picture that John's painting here? It's frightening. But it's so important you understand it. There's books. One of these books is called the book of life. Well, what's in the book of life? Names of people who've repented, who trust in Jesus. When you trust in Jesus, you can know for sure that your name is in that book. And when your name is in that book, you have that promise of eternal life. On that day, you'll receive your commendation from God. But if your book name is not there, you, like all people, will be judged for your works. And it will be found that you've not treated God like God. You've not treated him or even people the way that you treat you were created to. And the judgment that unbelievers will face in this day, you can see for yourself on the page in front of you, is devastating. What strikes me is that in the end, there will be two groups of people. Really, it's kind of like the Titanic. You remember the Titanic from 1912? Really, when you think about it, there were two groups of people on that boat. And I'm not talking about the rich people on, on top and the poor people underneath. No, there was two groups of people on the Titanic that day, that night. Those who survived and those who perished. I wonder, spiritually speaking, before this great, good, and holy God, where you stand, do you have life over your life right now because of Jesus? Is it written, no condemnation? Or do you stand in serious trouble 
unless you repent and turn to him. Thomas Manton wrote this. It's a bit archaic in its wording, but I think it reads well. He used this illustration. He says, the ship holds her course. Now, don't think of the Titanic. It's sunk. Just move on. We're done with the Titanic. But think of a ship that doesn't sink. The ship holds her course and makes for the desired port. Whether they on board sit, lie or walk, eat or sleep. That to me is a striking illustration. Imagine we're on a ship and on that ship there's all kinds of activities going on. There's people at the buffet there's other people who are sunbathing on the deck, some swimming in the pool, some playing shuffleboard, some are reading a book. Some are maybe leaning over the railing, throwing up into the sea. All kinds of different activity going on in this boat. You're free to roam around and make, make use of the time however you see fit, however you choose. But as we roam around freely on the ship, the ship is itself making its way to port. And whether we read or sing or eat or drink beer at the bar, it is going to port, and every moment that passes, it gets closer and closer to its destination, regardless of what activity we ourselves are engaged in, until one day in one moment it will arrive. That, loved ones, is our life. We are on a steady march toward the end. And my question for you this morning is that when we reach port, where will you stand? What will that be for you? There are two kinds of people those who live and those who perish. Those who live, live not by their own merits, but because of Jesus, who they trust in. And the wonderful good news of the gospel is that Jesus has an offer on the table for you today. He says, come to me, and I will give you rest. You can know, you can know that judgment day for you will be something you can anticipate and not dread. What's your response to this message? You know, amongst the Athenians, as we were reading, you saw there was different responses, weren't there? There were some who heard talk of resurrection and said, that's nonsense. That's crazy. I'm not listening anymore to this. And they rejected it. There's others who heard Paul's message and they decided to reflect on it. They didn't dismiss it. They were wrestling with it. And they're like, we'll hear you again. We want to hear more about that. And maybe that's you today. Maybe you're hearing what I'm saying and you're not there believing yet, but you're wrestling with this and you're not dismissing it. I want to encourage you in that. I'm so grateful you're here. I just want to encourage you to keep on wrestling that you, like some of these Athenians, might indeed feel your way to God or better yet, that he would come and find you. Some reject it. Some reflected on it. Some received and believed it. Not just agreeing with it in my mind, but personally entrusting myself to, G myself to Jesus, that this is true and that I need him. What is your response to this message today? Loved ones, final judgment is coming. And oh, that you would fly to Jesus so that you will indeed be ready. Let's pray together.